Talk That Matters, brought to you by the Salvation Army. After the political uprising in Egypt this year, I thought we'd do a profile of Egypt. Life, culture, what makes them tick in this unique hotspot of the world. Walk like an Egyptian. The Arab Republic of Egypt is a transcontinental country with the land bridge to Southwest Asia. The overall population at last count was around 79 million people, the greater majority living along the Nile, as you would expect. About 12% of Egyptians work in tourism and on the Red Sea Riviera, which, as the name suggests, is the collection of Egypt's resort cities. Political upheaval is as ancient as the culture. For example, in the 21st century BC, a political uprising lasted 150 years, ending around the year 2040 BC, with renewed prosperity for Egypt. Richard Schumach is a research fellow with the Centre for Public Christianity in Sydney, particularly focusing on Islamic studies and philosophy. Richard lived in Egypt and we caught up with him in a cafe in North Sydney recently. Yeah, well, we lived in Cairo and uh, Cairo is a, it's a huge, bustling, exciting, people-filled, noisy, crazy city. There's 30 million people that fit into maybe a quarter of the area of Sydney. Life, certainly if you're middle class, life there is similar to any big Western city. Uh, in terms of work, education, eating out, entertainment, they love their sport, particularly soccer. Uh, in Cairo, there's two huge, there's a bit like Man City, Man United, you've got Zamalek Al Ali, big rivalry in the football. Unusual to have a house, even the, the wealthy will usually live in an apartment rather than a house. It's a very high density city to live in. The big difference, I guess, is that there's a, a lot more poverty in Cairo certainly than there would be in a western city. It's very noisy and people everywhere. Uh, a lot of people had poor standards of living. That would be the greatest difference in Cairo. If there's a lot more poverty, is the presence of street beggars and street people more prevalent, like in New York? Uh, not so much. There are some beggars, but it's more that you have whole areas that um, are very low standard housing, very tightly packed, uh, a lot of poverty in those areas, very low resources. Um, be very hard for those people to access medical care or um, education is a lot more difficult, that sort of issue. But yeah, um, not so much that there's a lot of street people, but just a lot of very, very poor suburbs. What percentage of Cairo are we talking about? Uh, oh, we'd be saying like three quarters of the city is very tightly packed and by Australian standards would be um, low income. The other thing too is there's a very large um, refugee population who are effectively living in camps around the place, slums, camped, camped out, particularly um, Somali refugees or Nigerian refugees, West African, uh, million, literally millions of refugees. 30 million people, very big place, very busy city. In Mexico to steal across the border into the US is pretty uh, tough if you're willing to try the freeway and you can climb pretty well. In countries like Indonesia and Vietnam, you know, uh, to take to the seas is so risky. It's ironic how easy it was for these refugees to get into Egypt. Most of them would have caught, caught a bus. Yeah, it's not so hard to get across borders. Tell us about where you lived in Cairo. Sure, well we were living in a middle class suburb, it's called Ma'adi. Uh, it's mainly uh, apartments, but quite reasonable apartments. Uh, the people who we were living with were Egyptian professionals, so they were teachers or they were um, doctors or they were physios or they were accountants. Yeah, so, but we were, most of the people in our building, it wasn't an expat area, it was um, mainly Egyptian professionals. Mardi Gadid actually is where we were, it's New Mardi. View of the pyramids from your apartment window? Not quite, from the top of the building you could see the pyramids, yeah. The pyramids, uh, they're in the background of Cairo. They, they have a real sense of history, in fact that's one of the real things that 
um, I loved about Corrie was that sense of history. You're walking where Jesus walked, you walked where Moses walked. They have some of the earliest Christian churches. They're now underground because the rivers built up the level of the city. But um, you go to the pyramids and the Egyptians have a real sense that they are uh, in the cradle of civilization. And, and interestingly, the, it's a multicultural society. They have two large, the two large communities are the Arab population, but there's also the Coptic Christian population. The Arabs are largely Muslim, the Coptics are Christians, um, and the Copts are the descendants of the pharaohs. And again, they have that very strong sense of being descended from the pharaohs. And not just that, they also have a very strong sense of being the early church. So you go to the cathedral in Alexandria, and they trace their bishops right back to the apostles. And certainly if you, you see the Coptic priest, they'll be walking around in, some, in what most Orthodox priests would be walking around in. And interestingly, it's very similar to what Muslim holy men would be wearing as well. So there's, um, yeah, it's just a historic religious garb that they would be wearing. Walk like an Egyptian. Can you give us some insight into their recent political history? Yeah, sure. Well. Um, up until the 1950s, it was a monarchy, but then it was overthrown. And then it, since that time, it's been a secular democracy in theory. However, for the last 30 years, it's been a democracy where um, it's been under emergency law, has been declared by the president, and effectively it's been a dictatorship for the last 30 years. The current president, or the recently deposed president, the uh, ex-president, uh, Mubarak, he was in power for 32 years and ran it as a, effectively, as I said, a dictatorship. The military were powerful, the police were powerful, the secret police were quite powerful. It was a peaceful place, but there wasn't much freedom of speech. Uh, it was a relatively prosperous time for uh, Egypt, but it was the elite uh, became very wealthy out of it and the poor stayed poor. So a lot of the frustration uh, that led to the current events where people were very annoyed that Mubarak, as it turns out now, was hoarding billions of dollars, whereas the poor stayed poor. Um, and the, any political debate was shut down by the media, by the military, by the police, by the secret police. You'd be, you'd be jailed for um, speaking out of line, or the media would shut down debates. Yeah, it was a, it was a risky thing to do. When the events were unfolding, my concern was where, who are the military going to align themselves with? If they align themselves with Mubarak, then there would be a crackdown, there would be a violent crackdown. If they align themselves with the opposition, with the people, then it would be interesting to see what happens. And I think the question now will be how long the military maintain control of the situation there. So they're talking about a couple of months before they have a vote on a new constitution and perhaps six months before they hand over to a secular democracy or a, a democratic government. If that plays out, uh, that would be great, I think, for the people of Egypt. The other thing, that, another question that needs to unfold is how happy the various political groups will be with the shape of a new constitution. If they can get hammered out, then the hopes for a peaceful settlement I think are, are really good actually at the moment. The military don't seem to be split on this or they don't seem to be wanting to violently cling on to control or power. So yeah, it's looking good. One of the interesting questions is that there are still a number of people who are close and in positions of power in the Mubarak government who are still in positions of power. And so the question will be, again, will be what shape the next government takes, who's it made up with, what sort of coalition is it made out of, especially what will be the role of 
groups like the Muslim Brotherhood or Islamist groups in it will be a secular government? Will there be an Islamist element to the government? Those are some of the really interesting questions that will have to play out. Considering the question of the long-term hopes for peace in Egypt, I received a testimony from a Christian in Egypt who was very, very excited at these events, um, speaking on behalf of a Christian with his hopes for peace, with his hopes for justice in the country, his hopes for freedom. And I think certainly there is a lot of hope in this process. But one of the very interesting contrasts between Christianity and Islam is that in Islam, and this is why you see the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, most people who are pious Muslims saw hope in the Muslim Brotherhood in politics because they see that, for a start, they saw them as the only viable political group who was trying to seek justice. But more than that, their understanding is that if Islam can be imposed on a country, then and the laws of Islam can be opposed on a country, imposed, then that will generate peace because the laws are good laws. And I think one of the things as Christians that we would um, want to cling on to very tightly would be that democracy may well be a better political system, but in the end, peace has to be an internal thing. It has to be a heart-generated peace. It can't just be imposed from the outside. Uh, and so whatever hopes there are for peace in the long term, they have to touch people's hearts. And I think that for us, that's the hope of the gospel, that people's hearts are touched. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. As the Prince of Peace, he puts his spirit in people and they become people of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, and I think that's the genuine hope for the long term of Egypt. And I know personally know many Coptic Christians who would have that same hope and belief and that they would want to contribute that sort of piece into the Egyptian political situation. Richard Schumach, a research fellow with the Centre for Public Christianity. Since we spoke to Richard, things of course have continued to develop in Egypt. As Richard pointed out, it's peace in their hearts that they need the most and that we need the most. In Jeremiah 29 verse 11, God said that his plans and thoughts for us are to give us a future and a hope, plans for our welfare and not for our harm. There is hope for the helpless, there's Cry out to Jesus